0: That should make us laugh.
1: Ah, hello. It's nice to see you all here. Now, as the more perceptive of you probably realized by now, this is hell. (laughs) And I am the devil. Good evening. Uh, But you can call me Toby if you like we try to keep things informal here, as well as infernal. <laughs> um, that's just a little joke of mine. I tell it every time. Now, you're all here for eternity. Ooh which I hardly need tell you, is a heck of a long time. Um, So you'll all get to know each other pretty well by the end. But for now, I'm going to have to split you up into groups. Will you stop screaming? Thank you. Now, murderers. Murderers over here, please. Thank you. Uh, Looters and pillagers over here. Thieves, if you could join them. And lawyers, you're in that. Uh, fornicators, if you could step forward. My God, there are a lot of you. Uh, could I split you up into adulterers and the rest? Male adulterers, if you could just form a line in front of that small guillotine in the corner there. Uh, the French, are you here? <laughs> If you'd just like to come down here with the Germans... I'm sure you'll have plenty to talk about. Okay, Um... Atheists. Atheists. Over here, please. You must be feeling a right bunch of nitwits. (laughs) Never mind. And finally, Christians. Christians. Ah, yes, I'm sorry. I'm afraid the Jews were right. (laughs) That'd be really kind. Thank you. Okay. Right. Well, are there any questions? Yes. No, I'm afraid we don't have any toilets. Um, If you'd read your Bible, you might have seen that it was damnation without relief. (laughs) So if you didn't go before you came, then I'm afraid you're not going to enjoy yourself very much. But then I believe that's the idea. Okay, well, it's over to you, Adolf. And I'll uh, catch you all later at the barbecue. Bye.
0: Always good to have a A little bit of a laugh at ourselves (laughs) as well. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for, thank you for fruta. Thank you for this place where we live. Thank you that we get to gather together in your name this morning. We've got our friends here. We've got our family here. We have your word open in front of us. Please bless this time that we have together. Please come be with us, Father. Amen. Announcements. Uh, June 11th and 12th is uh, the next food bank. That's next weekend. Uh, so we call your friends, call your neighbors. Uh, we were talking about doing some conscriptions where you, you know, take three or four people, whack people over the head, stuff them in a barrel, they wake up on the ship. We could do that. Uh, we just, we're probably going to be short of some volunteers for the next couple food banks. So please, um, if you know of anyone that can come help, please do that. Um, we're just going to have some folks that are missing. It's, it's summertime, so f- people are going on vacation, and um, we just need to make sure we, um, we have enough folks. Otherwise, it's, it's a lot of work for very few people um, to do food banks. So please, uh, like I say, um, uh, plan on coming if you can, if you can't can at all, and then if you know somebody that can come help, now is a great time for them to, uh, to come and help. Uh, June 16th is the ladies' uh, um, uh, evening here where they're going to do the card-making party. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet at the back of the church. It's, uh, it's free. It's just a social time for the ladies to get together and, and have a good time and um, get to spend some time together. So Ms. Wendy is putting that together. If you have any questions, please see hers. There's a sign-up sheet at the back, and it's at 6.30 on Wednesday, June 16th. Father's Day coming up on June 20th. And then uh, the Bible studies are on the, uh, the summer hiatus, so they will be coming back in the fall. You'll notice that you didn't have like a regular bulletin. You have the, the timeline and the map. We're going to be referring to those quite a bit today. We are in John chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 26. We've gone through this miracle before, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. We've, we've talked about this before. We're going to specifically hone in on, on one section— of this, and we have a a very large history portion today. The vast majority of of today's message is a a history portion. So let's um, open our Bibles, I say, to John chapter 4, and we're in verses 1 through 26, and we can get started. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring in them of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, well, when Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of all will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. We're going to kind of laser focus in on that 21 through, uh, really through 24, We've been on this theme We over the last few weeks. We have broken down the processes of religion. We have broken down what it is that we are required to do, what it is that we are asked to do as Christians, why we do it, how we do it. All of those things, we've, we've talked about those. We've talked about communion. We have um, talked about baptism. We have talked about um, prayer. We've talked about those things and a lot of our foundation for our church comes directly from this this verse it's an amazing revelation that Jesus gives this woman it turns the church on its head really we've gone from the law which you know all of its 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 rights all of the things that go along with it and he says really let's break it down let's get it down to two commandments and worshiping in spirit and in truth what i want to focus on though is really to say a couple of things number 1 in some ways, yes, it is a big change. But another way, it's really the way that he always intended for us to, to worship, the way that for us to have our, our processes. He gave us designated times. And also, remember for the Jews that they didn't have a, a nation. When they came out of Egypt, a lot of when we read the law, it was to help them establish a nation. How do they govern themselves? How do they have rules? What rules should they follow? Really, when you, when you get them, when they receive the law, They're basically being handed the, the writs and charters of a nation right away. They didn't have to go through the processes of writing a constitution, having a, a congress, having all of those political things where selfish ambition can, can come into it. They didn't have all of the debates and then you know, have a, pass a first constitution then have it collapse and fail and then you know, have to, to do it all over again. They didn't have to go through a, a period of civil war, although they did end up separating shortly um, after they, they started taking kings. But what Jesus says is quite striking. He says, You're no longer going to worship, not on the mountain, nor in Jerusalem. He says, You'll worship me in spirit and in truth. He says something also really quite profound for us that speaks to us as we sit here. He says, We as Jews worship what we know. He's establishing something there. He's saying, Jews have a relationship with God. That word, know, is just like husband and wife. They're saying, the Jews know God. They are right there. You're worshiping what you do not know. You don't have the same relationship that Jews do with God. He says, but you are going to worship in spirit, in truth. And that time has now come. And those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That's a remarkable statement considering the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus knows he is going to the cross. He's just come from Jerusalem. They're working their way back up north up to, to Galilee. He knows that he will be the propitiation, the atonement for all mankind. Those are some pretty kind words for the people that he knows are going to kill him. Isn't it? That's striking to say salvation is from the people that are going to kill me in just a short amount of time. He maintains throughout his ministry that the Jews are the true vine. That's exactly where we're going. We're going to go to Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. See, the Bible is not ambiguous about the relationship between the Jewish people and the evangelical church. The Jewish people are the true vine. We are the vine that is grafted in. We are rightly called the children of God. But it's a mistake to think that we have replaced the Jewish people as children of God. There's a lot of Christians, and it's been throughout history, where Christians have really turned anti-Semitic, saying that we have replaced their inheritance, that we have taken over their spot. And that's not true, and that's really what Jesus is saying, is saying, no, 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 don't get this right, don't get this wrong. I am the root they are branches. You are a branch that is grafted in. Now, and it says very clearly, and we're going to get there in just a moment, that some of the branches have been b- broken off. And it says that some of those branches that were broken off will be grafted back in at some time. But they are still the true branches. So let's go to Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. It says, I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought about reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, and that is granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more ready will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Jesus is the root. God is the root. The Jews are the true, the natural branches of the olive tree. We come from a wild olive tree, but we're grafted into the true olive tree. God broke off some of the dead, fruitless branches and grafted in some wild but fruitful branches. However, at the right time, the natural branches will be fruitful again. And some of those branches that were broken off will become fruitful and will be grafted back in. But it asks us a, a question, it's several questions that we can ask. Why is anti Semitism such a big deal, and why does it continue throughout history? Why? We're get, you've got your map there in front of you. Look at the size. It's about the size of New Jersey, Israel is. It's not that much land. I mean it is right on the coast I think but right now the israelites don't hold that coast part they they've given that over ask yourself what are individual property rights what are they what about individual freedom what about religious freedom what about the right of self determination getting to choose for yourself your own path what is community What makes a nation valid? When does a collection of people get to be recognized as a nation and have those rights? And as a people, have rights to set their own boundaries, to determine their own future, to practice their own religion, to make up their own rules. Try to think of another people who are as hated as the Jews. Because for over 4,000 years, people have been trying to wipe the Jewish people off the map. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why over a piece of land that they didn't even occupy, we're going to read through, they didn't even occupy it for hundreds of years? Why so hated? Think about their history, and we're going to go through this, but once they took the Holy Land... Why didn't they go on conquest? I mean, they didn't even finish taking the Holy Land. They stopped short. They actually made a deal with the last place, so they didn't even fulfill what they were asked to do. But if we were to look at regimes throughout history, the Jewish people never went on conquest. They never went out seizing territory. They never went out and and seized an island somewhere to expand their territory. They never went off and, and tried to take the oil fields of Iraq or Kuwait or any of those places around them. They briefly have gone into the the Sinai Peninsula all the way up to the the city of of Sinai, but they have never gone out on, on global conquest. In comparison, think about the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, the Ottomans. What about the British, the French, the Germans, the Spanish? Think about religious groups, Christians. We've gone on some crusades. Six of them. Four of them to the Holy Land, two of them in Europe. Mormons. They regularly attack natives and Christians. What about Muslims? Their entire religion is based on holy war, on killing the infidel. Even those that convert are not considered heirs to their their religion. Even Buddhists and and Sikhs have waged holy wars against each other. What about atheists? Stalin and Lenin and Mao and Che Guevara? Over 12 million in Russia. Over 30 to 40 million in China. One to two million dead in Vietnam. What about the United States? Even in our own founding, when we did our, our westward expansion, manifest destiny, they called it, that we would cover the entire nation. So why those guys? of all of the conquesters, of of all of the people that have gone out and gone to war, why hate them? Why? I would say that if you are looking for something that that says patently that the Bible is true, gives true veracity to God and His Word, the continuance of anti-Semitism is some of the strongest proof that we have. There is no logical reason that people continue to hate and to attack the Jewish people. None. Unless you've read this book and you realize that they are the true vine. Then suddenly, oh, yeah, I can see that the devil is continuously pitched against God's people and will be throughout time until the end. But if you were to take this away, you go, man, a plot of land the size of New Jersey was mostly desert. They've done a fantastic job growing food there now, but It's not a natural growing area. It's a lot like our climate. It's pretty tough to carve out a a living out there. But that's what they're fighting over. That's what they've been fighting over for over 4,000 years. So if the Bible isn't true, why? Why do they continue to battle? I say that gives pretty good evidence as to the truth of what we read. So we're going to go through and... uh, we're going to go through just the timeline of Israel, the history of Israel. Because we want to get to know these true branches. Jesus says that your salvation is from the Jews. We should know this. Because it is our heritage, is where we come from. We are those branches that are grafted in. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 11. You guys don't have to turn. It'll it'll be up here on your on your screens. But this is just Abraham. It's Abraham's family. It says this is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they got to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So you're going back to 2150 to 1975, before the common era, BCE. We can't say before Christ anymore. But we're talking 4,100 years ago, Abraham settles into what is now Israel. There's a great thing. We're going to go to Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, where Stephen gives us a pretty good in-depth look at at this whole process. But think about worldwide what's going on right there. Egypt existed. The the pyramids were were more than likely built or, or were at least close to being finished. China existed. The Mayans were in South America building their pyramids. Europe and Russia, the Americas and Africa, they were all hunter-gatherer societies. There was no civilization established there yet. That's how far back this goes, the first time when when Abraham crosses into what is now Israel and settles there. So, does that give them property rights there? Does that make them a nation? Does that give them forbearance? Does that give them some sort of precedence to, to own the land? Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. This is that great spot where where Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. He says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land... Where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. If we go to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, it's the calling of Abraham. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And then in Genesis chapter forty-six, it talks about the famine in Canaan, that's why they went down to Egypt. It says, So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation here. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent them to transport them. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all of his offspring. It's amazing that God tells him that it's okay to go to Egypt, that despite the hardship that they're going through, the famine that they're going through, that they will go down there and that they will still, the promise is still true, that they will still receive the land and that they will still be blessed. In 1446 BCE, that's when the Israelites escape Egypt, and that's in Exodus chapter 13-18. through 18. The Israelites go through and they, they conquer the Holy Land. Like I said, not, not all of it. They, uh, they negotiate for the last little part there. They don't fully fulfill the covenant, and it continues to harass them throughout their history. In 1043 BCE, internationally, Israel becomes the first nation when Saul becomes king. That's when, if you look at all the history books, that's when they say Israel becomes a nation. They don't consider the part before that for them to to really have existed as a nation until they take a king. It's a fantastic, kind of weird perspective to take, but that's what they they do. So if we pull up the map, we have a, a map here. So this shows... Israel as it was when they first moved into the land. And this is the division by the, the 12 tribes. So you can see how it was divided up among each of the, the 12 tribes here. You can see East Manasseh and West Manasseh. You can see um, uh, Judah. You can see all of the, the tribes. You can see Moab, not part of Israel down there at the bottom, but will continue to be a, um, an enemy to them. But you can see the land in comparison to the map that you have there. Look at it, how it was when they first moved in, and then compare it to how it is now on the map that you have there in front of you. Notice the borders. Notice the the river to the north. Notice the Jordan running through the middle of the country. Notice Manasseh and Gad and Reuben to the east of the Jordan. And remember that this is 3,000 years ago that Israel is a nation. There is no such thing as a Muslim. They do not exist and will not exist for another 1,500 years. If we were to march forward in time, in 1010 BCE is when David is made king of Israel. In First Kings 6 is when Solomon builds the first temple. So we have a, a quick video. It's a 3D tour of the, of the first temple. Our computer's amazing. <laughs> Give us such amazing recreations of, of things. It's much smaller than the second temple. Um, we'll go, we have another 3D tour of the, of the second temple when we get to that point. But if we go to 1 Kings chapter 12 and chapter 13, that's in 931 BC. That's when the kingdom is divided. So you have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. They were fighting over bad kings. God didn't originally want them to have a king. It was a concession to give them a king. And not shortly after the death of Solomon, suddenly the, the nation is divided. It wasn't by war that was, you know, they didn't go off and, and slaughter each other. That's okay, but they did end up divided with the northern kingdom and, and with the southern kingdom. Then in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 29, you have. In 722 to 740 BCE, the Assyrians invade and they take over the northern kingdom of Israel and they lay siege to Judah. If you were to to flip there in your Bible, it says, In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, son of Ramalia, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pelziar, king of Assyria, came and took um, uh, there's a bunch of names here, but um, Abel, Beth, Mecha, Janua, Kadesh, and Hazor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all of the land of the Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. Then Hosea, son of Elah, conspired against Pekah, son of Ramalia. He attacked and assassinated him, and then succeeded him as king in the twentieth year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. As for the other events of Pekah's reign, and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Then in 586 BC is when the Babylonians come. So, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured that's going to be followed by the, the Persians in five thirty eight and then the Greeks in three thirty two in one hundred forty two is when the, the Maccabee revolution is talk about why we have Hanukkah, that's what happened. Was Remember, there was this, this fight between the... Um, remember, it's not the Greeks anymore. The, the Greek empire has fallen. It's, uh, the four generals have taken over, and these guys, are, they're fighting over the, the temple again. And the, the temple is, is sacked, but in there, they, they destroy the holy oil for the, that burns the candles. And there's just enough for one for one day, and it lasts for eight days until they can con- consecrate some more oil. That's where Hanukkah comes from. And then Judah was reclaimed and and reunited during that revolution, but not Israel. Then in 63 BC is when the Romans come. The interesting thing about the Romans is that they allowed the Jews to return to the land. They also allowed them to worship. That was not usual for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was pretty strict about the, the worship of their gods. But they made an exception for the Jews, and it's it's noteworthy that they allowed them to resume sacrifices, that they allowed them to, um, they rebuilt the temple, um, that uh, Herod the Great rebuilt the temple, and they were able to resume Jewish life. They had a lot of freedom under the Romans that a lot of other people did not have, and they still chafed under it. I wouldn't say that it was um, overly pleasant or anything to think about um, you know Herod's command to, to kill the firstborn when he hears about Jesus. It's not like these were, were super nice guys. Think about um, Pilate, you know, marching his army up from, uh, from the coast every time there was a Passover, every time there was a celebration, he would gather his, his guys and march into the city with, uh, with the flags flying as a, as a show of force. And we have the time of Jesus, which is where we are now in our, in our text in John. And then in 70 AD, if we were to To fast forward a few years, that's when Jerusalem is destroyed. It's uh, one of those great, you know, tragedies. There's rumor of of rebellion. There's been some skirmishes with with the Romans. And so the Romans wait until a Sabbath day, wait until they know that the the Jews will not fight. They build their siege engines on a hill across from Jerusalem, uh, making sure that they won't be taken down by archers while they're doing it. And then they invade and they flatten the city. So what they do is actually they built a city on top of it, and they they destroy the temple, and they build a temple to Jupiter on top of the Temple Mount. But in 135 AD, that's the Bar Kokhba Revolt, led by Simon Bar Kokhba. There's a big fight, but that's what led the Romans to finally wipe out the whole thing. They separated the Jews, they forced them out of the land, and they renamed the land to Palestina after the Philistines. They wanted to really stick it to the Jews to let them know that the Romans were in charge. So they renamed the entire land to Philistina. That's why it's called Palestine now, is that Roman name that was given to the land after the Bar Kokhba revolt. So when you talk about Palestinians, those are people of of Egypt or Jordanian or Arab descent that then settled into that Roman colony that was created after the destruction of Israel. But again, we have to ask ourselves a question is, how far back do you have to go? Who is a a legitimate citizen? Who gets to live there? Who gets to call it home? And when is it a home? And when do your rights and your property rights come in? In 638 AD is when the the Muslims, in the form of uh, Caliph Omar, they invade Jerusalem. See, Muslims believe that the Temple Mount is where Muhammad ascended. So they built the Dome of the Rock. I think we have a, a picture of it here, the Dome of the Rock, and they have behind it, you can't really see it, but the Al-Aqsa Mosque there on the Temple Mount. But that's why. It's the third holiest site in the Muslim religion. They believe that's where Muhammad ascended. So today, if you were to go there, you can go to the Dome of the Rock. And we just recently had Ramadan. And During Ramadan, over 100,000 Muslims. And think about that, when that was, it was just a few weeks ago. So while rockets were being launched from um, the Gaza Strip, while they were being launched from Lebanon, over 100,000 Muslims gathered in Israel, in Jerusalem, and were able to go to the Temple Mount and worship under the protection of the Israeli soldiers. But it's, the Israeli soldiers guard the Temple Mount. The only thing they ask for is that they allow prayers on the West Wall, which is the, um, the, an archaeological dig site that they've dug of as part of the original, not Herod's Temple, not, not the original temple, but Herod's Temple side. But generally, it's fought over. There's a lot of violence on the West Wall. They, during certain times, they don't recommend tourists go to the West Wall because the likelihood of them being physically attacked is pretty high. But that's what they're, what they're fighting over is that, that piece of land right there. So then we fast forward to 969 A.D., which is when the Fatmids come up out of Egypt. And then in 1071, um, the Turks come through. And then in 1099 is when the, the first of the Crusaders come. So they come in, they, they kill the Turks and the Arabs, and, and they also kill the Jews until they are expelled by Saladin, who uh, is Arab, but he comes out of Egypt. He uh, trains down in Egypt, forms an army, and then comes up in 1187 A.D., and expels the Crusaders. And by that time, the, the Crusaders had, uh, they had long run the place out of money and were, were struggling for a reason. It was a thing to go on the Crusade. If you were a, a nobleman, you wanted to have some sort of, of right of combat. And that's what the Crusades provided, was a bunch of French and English knights, the ability to say that they had combat experience away from home. So they would go down here. They would fight the Arabs for a while. They would um, do the thing, and they would get to come home with some treasure and also with some acclaim. But then in 1517, that's when the Ottoman Empire takes over the land. And they rule it from 1517 to 1917, until uh, England conquers the Holy Land during their fight against the Ottoman Empire. That was during World War I. So World War I starts in 1914 after the, most of you know this, but the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. And that war stretches all across but you can remember that, that Great Britain went across. They were trying to defeat the Ottomans in the, in the middle of this. So you have um, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire. Um, they called them the central powers against Great Britain, France, and Russia, and Italy, and Romania, Japan, and the United States. They were called the Allied Powers. We can think about during that time, that 1500 to 1917 time, how rampant anti-Semitism was. It was rampant here in America. It was rampant around the world. If you know, Anybody have to study The Merchant of Venice for, for one of your literature classes? I, I did. But the Shiloh, the bad guy in The Merchant of Venice from Shakespeare, is a Jew. He's a bad, that's the bad guy. Anti-Semitism was, Semitism was rampant during that time. And after World War I, there were quite a few Jews who were put into prison. The Jews were wildly accused on both sides. It was it, it, it's crazy, but they would say, "Well, you know, if you were over in Russia, if you were over on one side, well, you helped out the other side." The Allies were saying the exact same thing. Well, you know, even though the the, the Jews signed up and fought with their own countries, and they sometimes fought against each other as they tried to um, uh, help with the war effort, that they were still accused of being traitors just simply because they were Jews. But in 1917 there was something important that happened. It was called the Balfour Declaration. So all these Jews that had been chased by this persecution in Europe, they had formed their own alliance. It's called the the Zionist Alliance. And they had finally gotten a voice in the League of Nations. Remember before the United Nations, it was the League of Nations. And it led to this, the Balfour Declaration. I think we have a, a picture of it to put up. So in there, they declared that, And this is fantastic for the the, the British kingdom to declare that Israel could be handed over to the Jews, that they could have a homeland again. Of course, this inflamed the Arabs quite a bit, but that set us on the trajectory that led to the 1948 when, when Israel was resettled as the country that we know it now. It started right there with that little letter with the Balfour Declaration. But... Remember, this is still under, under British rule. And the magistrate, they limited the amount of immigration. You can imagine all the Jews around the world, they just come out of the war. All of them wanted to go home. They wanted nothing more than to go home. But the British restricted immigration. Usually around you know, ten to 20,000 people a year were allowed to go into the country. So if we were to look at the census, but from the 1800s to the early 1900s, less than 100,000 Jews were allowed to immigrate to Israel. There's quite a few Jews that went to the surrounding countries. They, they left Europe. They left from around the world. And so these Arab nations started getting these pockets of Jews who were on the heels of the Balfour Declaration. They were waiting to get in. So they would go and they would form these little um, pockets of civilization around there. and They lasted for almost 100 years in some cases. So, like I said, this World Zionist Organization, they're looking to, to, to find and to reunite the, Jew, Jew, uh, the Jewish people in Israel. However, like I said, the Arabs and the Egyptians do not want a Jewish state. They want to see, number one, the Jews destroyed. They want the people wiped out. And number two, they want to see the territories of the Ottoman Empire restored as independent states. There's a compromise. That's why we came up. That's why we got Iraq and Iran and all those. Those were Ottoman Empire territories that were allowed to become independent states when British mandate ended. But there are a lot of riots across Israel as those Jewish immigrants, the ones that got to go in, were attacked by their Arab neighbors. It gets so bad that in 1922, the League of Nations agrees that Israel should be the national home of the the Jewish people. So as a result, in 1922 to 1923, the the British are trying to negotiate a power-sharing agreement between the Arabs that are living there and the Jews, but the Arabs refuse. So the Jews do something interesting. They decide that the best way to win over their neighbors is to create an example community. They form a, a Knesset, which is just a Jewish term for a, a small you know, governing body, uh, like our, our local town council. And they vote for their leaders. They create the, the Hebrew University. It's established. But they also... They're, they're producing crops, and they're collecting taxes. So shortly thereafter, in 1929, even though the Jewish people are 15% of the population, they're making up 45% of the tax base of the entire country. It's, it's quite incredible. So then, these, these, like I so say, these attacks continue and it, through 1929, and the British response is they continue to limit immigration. They think, well, if we, just, if we just don't allow a lot of people in, eventually these, you know, these things will calm down. Well, it, it doesn't calm down. And so in 1937, uh, Lord Peel, who is uh, you know, British, he comes to, to this idea that he's going to come up with a compromise, and it's known as the, the Peel Plan. So we have a, a map of it, but it's an 80-20 split of the Holy Land, 80% Arab and 20% Jewish. This is the first two-state solution. So that, there's British mandates. So you can see Palestine and Transjordan there on the, the right. And then we can go forward to the, to the Peel plan. And you can see, so look at, the, look at the colors, but you can see that little orange part at the top is the Jewish state. The little green part in the middle is going to be like a neutral zone that's, that's run by the, the League of Nations. But the rest of that, that whole purple area, would have been given over to the Arabs. The Jews signed on to this. They said, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll take it. I don't know, is that the size of Trenton, New Jersey? I don't know. But that's a pretty small spot, and they were willing to take it. And that's the first time. There's over seven times that a two-state solution has been approved by the Jewish people and was not accepted by their, their Arab neighbors. So after the Peel Plan, the Arabs responded by making an alliance with Hitler. They wanted cooperation in Hitler's final solution, so remember, in 1941 to, uh, to 1943, Rommel comes charging across the African desert. And he, I uh, remember, he had, he had helped. Uh, he was the general that led the tank invasion into France. And then he went to Africa and was charging back across with the idea that he was going to be able to, to come up across the Middle East and charge across. And he was stopped. The the, um, the Allies were eventually able to stop him, but it took two years but during that time, Hitler is supplying weapons and ammunition to the Arabs so that they would fight the Jews and the British with the understanding that on victory that the Jews would be wiped out, that, they, that part of the final solution would be their death. And then during the war, of course, over 6 million Jews were put into death camps and were killed. But even after that, after that, was striking? They didn't after the war, after the, the, the final solution, after the, the camps, after all of that, they still limited immigration back to Israel. All those people, over half of the Jewish people had been wiped out by the Third Reich, and they were not allowed to return back to their, their home, to their home state. So in 1948, after World War II, the United Nations signed the partition plan that was to end British mandate to establish um, both an Arab and a Jewish state, and both states would be independent, what would have pre-negotiated economic agreements. Again, this plan, the second time, a two-state solution, the plan was approved by the Jewish people and rejected by the Arab neighbors. Again, we can, we can put this up there, but you can see it's the blue and the, and the tan there. A little bit different division of it, but again, the Jews had signed on to it. The response is the first war against Israel. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq invade Israel. It's funny. So what they do is they, they tell the Arabs that are living there that they're coming. So all these armies have amassed from these nations. And so they tell the Arabs that they're coming. They also expel the Jews. Remember, i telling you those camps are in all these territories, that these people are waiting to go in to Israel. So they kick the Jews out, going into the area they're about to uh, invade, and they tell the Arabs to get out. And that's exactly what happens. So you wonder, why are these all these pockets of these Hamas camps in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan? Those camps have been there since after World War II, since this first war. They told those guys to get out. They put them in these camps saying, hey, once we conquer Israel, you'll be able to go right back in and go right back home. Well, it doesn't happen that way. Israel is able to, to fight off the invasion. But it's over 700,000 people that trade in that that land swap. 700,000 Arabs go out and 700,000 Jews come in. 73 years later, those refugee camps still exist. So in 1949, they come to a ceasefire from this war. But then it goes to, you know, what we call peace. We put that in air quotes, where there's constant border skirmishes. Remember, now you have all of these people that have been displaced from their homes that are living in these camps all around Israel. So there's constant border clashes as they try to, again, get rid of the Jews and also to go back home to the places where they had lived for such a long time. Then in 1956, it's that way from 1949 until 1956 when Egypt seizes the Suez Canal and blocks trade. So Israel invades Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula and they force the Egyptians back. They almost go all the way to Cairo. But eventually, Israel will return the Sinai Peninsula um, back to Egypt and they also return, return back over Gaza. Then it goes to 1967. And that's, again, when Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Iraq, they prepare to invade Israel. But this time, the Israeli intelligence gets wind of it, that they're coming. So they attack first. The battle is—we've all heard of it—the Six-Day War. In six days, Israel decimated the forces of those Arab Arab countries— And that's when Israel pushed them all the way back, and they overtook the Golan Heights, not an area that they had held before. But what was happening was that the Arabs were able to sit. It's almost 2,000-foot sheer cliffs on the Golan Heights, and they were able to shoot down. So they knew tactically that they had to take that. So it was the first territory that they had seized. Think about they've been here for 20-some-odd years. That's the first time they took territory and they kept it. To this day, that is a UN-maintained demilitarized zone in the Golan Heights. So after the Six-Day War, the UN calls for a negotiated solution. They back off demanding a two-state solution and simply try to bring both sides to the table. However, in 1964, a man named Yasser Arafat had formed an organization known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and he was leading them. So in 1967, after the Six Days War, so September 1st, 1967. The Arab nations respond with, with what's called the Khartoum Resolution. It was issued at the conclusion of the 1967 Arab League Summit, which was convened at the wake of the Six Day War, and it was in the capital of Sudan, is where they met. It had three no's no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiation of Israel. That was it, that was their response. Now, I can't imagine looking at anyone, any human being, and saying, you don't deserve a home. You don't deserve a place to lay your head. You don't deserve to have a place to call your own. You don't deserve the same opportunities that I have had to go to school, to go to work, to build a family, to help others around you, to say that you're not valid, That, based on your race, based on your religion, based on where you come from, you don't deserve to have those things. You don't even deserve to exist. But that's the position that the Arabs take. So they go on to artillery attacks and terrorist attacks. Then I'm going to go to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. This is the Day of Atonement. It's mandated here in the law. It says, The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the Day of Atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of uh, the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. So on October 6, 1973, on Yom Kippur, while all of Israel is fasting and praying and gathering for this festival, the Arabs launched a surprise attack. The Israelites did not see this one coming. And they were able to invade back over, come back in uh, to part of of Israeli territory. But within a few days, they drove them back, but at heavy cost. But they drive the Egyptians back across the Suez Canal and almost to the city of Suez. They drive the Syrians almost back to Damascus. If you look on your map, you can see Damascus, how far they, they go back. The thing about the Yom Kippur War was this was during the Cold War, during the height of the Cold War. And so both the U.S. and Russia and China are are supplying both sides. We're supplying the Israelis, and and Russia is supplying the the Arab nations. And there's a lot of big fear that this is going to end up being a full-blown war that's going to start World War III. Thankfully, everyone is able to sign an accord after that. A ceasefire is negotiated at the U.N. shortly thereafter, and Israel retains its borders. But from 1964 until 1993, Yasser Arafat and the PLO, they led terrorism campaigns against the Jews, bombings, and now it's, it's Hamas. It's now since changed. Uh, Yasser Arafat has, has passed away. The PLO has passed out of, of, of power. Hamas is in power. Um, and now they, they use rockets. The Iranians give them rockets, and they launch rockets over into Israel. For like he said, this whole place, it's about the size of New Jersey. From where they're launching... They generally have between 30 and 45 seconds to determine where those rockets are going to land and to shoot them down. The Iron Dome system that protects Israel right now is, is an amazing marvel of technology. It, uh, during this last wave of attacks, I think there were six total rockets that impacted in civilian areas. They had, I think, about 10 total casualties in Israel um, from those rocket attacks. And those are hundreds of rockets that are are launched at them from those areas. And think about how close they are. They're in Gaza, right on the coast. They're in Lebanon. I mean, look at your maps. They're in front of you. That's how close those guys are when they they launch the, the rockets over. So in 1993, most of us remember this, when Yasser Arafat came to Washington, they had the Oslo Accords. It was an incredible moment we all thought that maybe that would be the start of, of peace in the Middle East, that maybe there would be some sort of, of peace. So in 1993, that's the first one of the Oslo Accords and starts the Oslo process. But there were several meetings, right? 1993, 1995. And then in 2000, they had a meeting at Camp David with then President George W. Bush. And it fell apart. There have been three what they call Intifadas, which are just holy wars. There were declared terrorism wars by the PLO against Israel. And again, seven times Israel has officially accepted a two-state solution to the problem. But our questions again are this. Are, what of individual property rights? What of individual freedom? What of religious freedom? What of self-determination? What of community? What makes a valid nation? When does a collection of people get to be recognized as a nation and get to live in peace? Why is anti-Semitism such a recurring thing? There have been waves of anti-Semitic attacks on both of our coasts right now. Why? Why? Thing is that tomorrow, most of us are not going to spend the day pouring through our Bibles. We are not going to spend our day in Scripture. We're not going to spend our day in prayer. But we will wake up in a bed. We will have a cup of coffee. We will get in a car. We will go to work. We're going to work with some people, maybe work with some customers. and Then we're going to come home. Maybe we'll buy something. Maybe we'll sell something. Well, maybe we'll make something, or maybe we'll repair something. So in the context of your tomorrow, all of those things depend on your individual rights, on your property rights, on your freedom, on your religious freedom to be in this building today, to be free from rocket attacks, to be free from crime, to be, have the ability to determine your tomorrow, to build your own community. So in the context of your tomorrow, who will you bless? Who will you curse? Who will you love and care for See, Jesus firmly put a couple of stones in place in our faith foundation in our our passage for today. He says, salvation is from the Jews. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations, and he has been. God promised Jacob his descendants would inherit the promised land after their time in Egypt. God promised David the Messiah would come from his line. God gave his law to the Jews and promised them he would be with them always to the end of the age. And Jesus is honoring those covenants in the new covenant. The olive tree is still the same. The roots are the same. Most of the branches are the same. Some got broken off and some new ones will get grafted in. Here's the thing is a bunch of Samaritans were saved that day because Jesus spoke to a woman at the well and she told them about them. He partnered with her. He didn't get bogged down in any of the messes. The first thing that she says to him is, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't even talk to each other. You're a man, I'm a woman. He says, I don't care about that. I care about you. See, we can always find ways to divide. Always find ways to divide each other. But it's good to know our history, where we come from, because then we can stand on confidence. We can look back across the ages and know the tree. Know the roots, know the branches, and know that we are grafted on. Amen. We gotta do something fun this afternoon. Oh, he's sleeping. I don't I don't want to even <laughs> bring her up here. Yeah, run. John? Yeah. Hi. How was your trip, guys?
1: Good.
0: Yeah? Yeah, yeah? Yeah, sure. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flying with two kids, especially little ones, is, is a lot of fun, huh? Yeah. We are so glad you are here. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. So we're just going to do a real quick blessing and dedication for little Sienna. Everyone, Kevin and Sophia, and we're so, so happy to see you guys. So glad that you're healthy. And we miss you greatly. But I say we're so glad that you're here. Where's Miss Rhonda? Oh, there she is. Great. You up here, Grandma? Okay. Dan, you're going to take some pictures? Great. Oh, oh, no. Yeah, no. Get up there. Yeah. So how old is she now? Three months. Man. Goes by so fast, doesn't it? It seems to accelerate. It just seems like yesterday you wanted flown out to, to be with you guys. All right. So God has rendered his opinion that little Sienna gets to come join us in the world, that we get this wonderful blessing to Sophia and Kevin. Father God, we lift up Sienna to you. We know that you see her, that you love her, that you bless her. Father, we are asking that you be with her that you guide her in every one of her steps, that you be the, the loudest voice that you hear, and that, Father, we dedicate her life to you. We dedicate her life to serving your son, Jesus Christ, that she would be a light, that as you shine brightly, that they would look at her and see you. Please, Lord, Keep her safe. This world can be so mean and cruel, Father. We seek your protection for her, that as she grows, that as she learns, that as she goes out into this world, that you protect her, every one of her steps, that you guide every one of her steps, and that you are with her. And then we lift Kevin Sevilla up to you, that, Father, you have blessed them with this arrow that is their child. It's not easy. It is not easy being a parent, but we're just asking that you be with them, that you speak loudly to them, that you shine brightly for them, that they are in you. Because we know that through you that good things come. And we cannot wait to see the fruit that comes out of these lives. We ask all that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Should we get you guys some, get some pictures? Sure. Yes. Do you have a camera? Where's your? Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Step over that way, guys. We'll get that way in front of the cross. We'll Yep. Yeah. 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 All right. Oh, no. She can, she can Yeah, she's. Yeah, she's. our. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yay! Oh, I know. Good job. Yeah, good job. All right. See you, everyone. All right. Let's go fellowship. We can go love on this baby some, <laughs> if they'll let us. <laughs>